0: Well, in the Christian calendar, this past Thursday and this next Sunday is very significant. Um, much spiritual meaning on this past Thursday and this next Sunday. Are you all ready? Celebrate? You got everything taken care of from advance? <laughs> you think, what have I missed? Well, we've missed it because you're in a Baptist church. And Baptist churches don't emphasize this too much, uh and and I think probably to our own harm. Uh but this past Thursday would have marked the ascension time of Jesus Christ. And next Sunday is Pentecost Sunday. Alright, so write that down. Alright. So alright, Pastor, what do I need to do and prepare for that? Anybody gifts, cards, what, what do I do? uh ascension sunday our ascension thursday uh this represented 40 days after easter if you read in uh especially 1st corinthians 15 it tells us how jesus walked with the disciples for 40 days and uh even appeared to as many as 500 at a time and then uh after 40 days jesus ascended up to be with the father and so we're going to talk about that this sunday today Uh, If you go and turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 6 through 11 and look at the ascension of Jesus Christ and what was accomplished. And then the Bible goes on and tells us that uh, 50 days after Passover or after Easter, uh, Jesus uh, sent the Holy Spirit down. And uh, that was the Pentecost Sunday of which the disciples received the power of the Holy Spirit, clothed with power as Jesus described it. Uh, to do the task of the church, and that is to be witnesses of Jesus to all the nations. And so it was a very significant time that was done on the Jewish festival of Passover. And so we're going to talk about that next Sunday, the Passover, or the, not Passover, but Pentecost, the Jewish festival of Pentecost. And so we're going to talk about that and the role of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers uh, today for uh, next sunday and the next uh, two three sundays after that uh, but uh, i think that it's good for us to consider the ascension of jesus christ this is where you actually have the last words of christ uh, a lot of times you hear sermons talk about the last words of christ on the cross but those were not his last words uh, in fact <laughs> the last word is yet to be said he's not dead um, and so but the last words with jesus and uh with the disciples is actually found in Acts chapter 1 where he uh commissions them to go forward uh as witnesses of Jesus and it is very telling to always remember the last words of Jesus with his disciples i shared with you before uh some time ago uh my own grandmother and uh, her last words to me uh she uh actually uh, died over in Wellington, uh, the uh, assisted living nursing home over here. And uh, I was not living here at that time. And uh, I was visiting with her and she seemed to have a sense of knowing that, that her time was coming to an end. Um, I did not see that. That was not what I wanted to see. And so when she starts charging me uh, and challenging me, I realized this is, this is it. And it was just a, a very poignant moment for me. But one of the last things she said to me was, uh, keep preaching the Bible. Never stop preaching the Bible. And that was just something that had a, a powerful moment that uh, was backed up by a lifetime of her praying for me and teaching the word of God herself, being an advocate for God's word, helping my granddad, teaching uh, God's word. And so it was backed up with a lifetime of uh, consistency with God's word. And it had a, a very special memory for me. And, and so when we look at the last words of Jesus with the disciples, it is a, a word that is consistent with his life. Well, uh, the life that the disciples knew that is consistent with his life still is consistent of the eternal life of God. It is God's heart as we read in Acts chapter 1 uh, and especially verses 6 through 11. Now, I'm not going to spend as much time as perhaps you might think on verse 8. Um, I, I do want to talk about what was accomplished with Jesus ascending up to be with the Father. And so... Uh, let's look at with that in mind as we read together acts chapter one Verse six through eleven. I want to share with you at least three reasons uh, why jesus ascended up to be with the father and so in honor of this being god's word Last words of jesus. Let's stand as we read together So when they had come together they asked him lord Will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing to heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. You may be seated. I want to first introduce one reason why Jesus ascended up to be with the Father. It's not a reason that is given to us in this text. It is one that you see earlier in his life that he prophesied. And the first reason is simply this. Jesus ascended to prepare a future home for those who are his. We see this text in John 14, verse 1 through 6. And in this passage, Jesus is preparing his disciples for the departure of the cross. And he was girding them up, so to speak. He is encouraging them, giving them words of strength, words of prophecy that they will hold on to and look back with. And John 14, verse 1 through 6 is, is uh, where he's introducing the idea that he is going to be gone. Though he has prophesied that many times with his uh, his disciples. And he says, don't be discouraged. Let not your heart be troubled. And gives them comfort in verse 1 through 6. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have not told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you... I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so we have this period of time where Jesus is now with the Father. And there's something that Jesus said in advance would have happened. But I am greatly encouraged by the fact of what Jesus is doing. How do I know what Jesus is doing? Because he said what he would be doing in John 14. That he is preparing a place for those who are his. Now, this has been the inspiration of some songs um, of which uh, some of them just flat out wrong. Of just how god 's preparing for us a mansion in heaven, but Lord, just give me a little shack in heaven, and you know we 've got all kinds of little uh sayings that we have along with that and 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 honestly we just don 't have a lot of scriptural um, Backing for it, but what he was saying here is kind of a, a Jewish way of saying, look in a home, what would often be with in the estate of the Father Jesus, or the the Father would build into the estate those that of his own that would eventually have their household with him, and so it was saying, I'm going to make room for you in my home. And this is often brought comfort to me and in the verse I bring comfort to those who I know are at death's door to say you remember what Jesus said that he is preparing a place he is making room for those who are his with him. Is there any wonder where we'll be Jesus said you will be with me in my father's house and so when I see him go. And we see in scripture that Jesus goes, it is something that causes joy in a believer's life. In fact, in Luke chapter 24, it's kind of uh, uh, the same author of Acts, Luke. Uh, this is the first volume to his, uh, his letters in the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke. And he talks about the end, and he just gives quick mention that Jesus departs. But he says that when Jesus departs, in verse 59, that the disciples go in joy. They leave in joy, and they are praising God in the temple every day. What would cause the disciples to, to have such joy? I mean, they see Jesus depart. I mean, this is it. They they no longer can can uh, sit next to him. Je- John cannot lay his hand up on John as on Jesus as they're eating. There there's no intimate moments physically anymore, but Jesus is giving them a word of promise so that when they see him depart, they do so with joy. You know, I, I think about that with uh, eating. It seems like the mom or the cook, whoever the cook may be, is constantly getting up as they're eating. And I remember just in, uh, growing up in my grandma's home, and, and she would uh, fix these meals, and they were just incredible feasts. And it seemed like she always had food all the time. And and I would just come by and somehow she would whip out this massive mill. And she just had a, a, an ability to do that. And it had something to do with maybe the fact that the basement was filled with cans of food. I think they never quite got over the depression. Uh, and They would just have the storehouse of food at all times. But no, no matter how much I ate, it, it still was such a good thing when I saw Grandma get up again toward the end of the mill. When she left the table... Because when she left the table, I knew because it was grandma's house that there was always going to come out something good when she came back to the table. That there was going to be more dessert to come. And it's it's this image of, of the disciples understanding when Jesus departs, it is a good thing because it's going to prepare a room for us that when Stephen is getting ready to be stoned that he sees Jesus up in heaven next to the Father and it brings such joy and spirit power in his life that even as he's getting pelted with stones, bruising and breaking and concussions, that even in that moment he's still rejoicing and saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. There is a joy in his life. And you see this among all the disciples that are witnesses to this. But there's more. And we get this in verse 6. It says, so when they came together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? This is an appropriate question. I mean, these guys have been taught the Old Testament. They know the prophecies. Uh, Jesus has now, he's surprised them. He, He died on the cross. And uh, and so Jesus came back in resurrection and explained to the disciples how this must be from the beginning to the end. And so they, they get it. Alright, now we see the scriptural timetable. Now, there's nothing left, Jesus. Is this it? Are you going to restore the kingdom of God to Israel now? Is, are you going to reign over earth now? What else do you have to do? And so they ask an appropriate question. Jesus doesn't deny that this is indeed what's going to happen. But he says in verse 7, you know what? You don't know how God's going to work. I think that's one thing we've got to be careful about our timetables as we look in prophecy. Sometimes we've got it nailed down to the T. And I think the disciples were in that same boat, and Jesus says to them, You know what? You don't know how God's going to work. He's got his times and they're fixed. I love I love how that's phrased. Father has fixed. The times and seasons by his own authority. That brings some comfort in my life. When I go through difficult ordeals, I know that Father has fixed the seasons by his authority. And it's not out of his control. But he goes on and he says, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you exactly what's going to happen. But this is one thing he does say. You notice then we, we have the promise. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And so he says the kingdom of God is going to take a, a shape that you don't quite recognize. You think it's going to be a military power. But the kingdom of God is coming. But it's not quite in the shape that you have in mind yet. So this tells us the second reason. He's alluding to uh, to the second reason why Jesus ascends to be with the Father. Or why he ascends. One is to sit with God the Father. It is a position of authority. Is a position of reigning. So when Jesus in bodily form, and this is amazing, a human, there's right there in front of him, a human rises up. And then a cloud, and I believe this is the glory of God. This is kind of glory of God. You see this in Mount Transfiguration. You see this at Mount Sinai. It is something that is symbolic of God's presence. And there is this cloud there that is surrounding what they know is a man. They've touched him. They've ate with him. They know it's a, a man. But he ascends up into heaven and he sits on the right hand of God on the throne of heaven how is it that the dust of the earth is on the throne in heaven does that strike anyone else's my goodness how does that happen what well, happens through the special being of god man jesus man who is also god now jesus said in advance that this was going to happen in fact right at the point of persecution, right before the cross, even before his enemies, the Pharisees and the priests who are accusing Jesus in Matthew 26, verse 64. Notice what he says to them. You have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He says, you won't see me again until you see me on the throne in heaven. He gives a prophecy. This is where I'm going. I'm going to be on the throne in heaven. Now, the disciples remember this. And then they see this. This ascension. And I love how in verses 9 through 11, the writer puts in five different times that the disciples are just looking. They're staring intently. They're gazing. It's in their sight. they are witnesses to this. Can you imagine? I would be looking too. Where's he going? Can I see where? Can I see the end goal? Can I? Can I get a glimpse of what? Where Jesus is going? It, it's almost like Moses saying, "Can Can you just show me some of your glory, God? Let me look." And so you have this cloud that covers, and then you have these two men clothed in white, and it's, it lets us know these are angels, and they explain what's going on. I think it's fascinating. You see the angels account to Jesus, uh, to to mankind at his birth. You see the angels, the two angels account to Jesus at his resurrection to mankind. You see angels ministering to Jesus in the time of temptation that this happens. But it's in these major points, the birth, the resurrection, and the ascension, that you have the clouds coming in and ministering and explaining to humans what's going on. And I can't help but think a little bit about Garden of Eden Where you have the seraphim defending the glory of God with the the flaming sword. Just gives me a a little bit of of that look. And and have these these angels just explaining to the guys. Hey, why are y'all staring? Why are you keeping your eyes looking up to heaven? You need to start looking around. Because this same Jesus is going to come down again the same way he came up. This happens... On the Mount of Olives, near Bethany, uh, you can go there and see this mountain. It's incredible. I just to see this mountain and just imagining in your your mind's eye Jesus ascending, and know that someday Jesus is going to descend, because it was promised by Jesus, promised by these angels here, that is something to look forward to. Now, what's going on? What, why is Jesus sitting at? The right hand of the Father. I, I you know, yesterday, uh, we were, uh, wrapping things up and cleaning up from the spring fling and, um, you know, we were getting in the car and we're trying to decide, okay, what, what, what are we gonna do now? It's about five o'clock. Where are we gonna go? And the question is, if we go home, <laughs> um, and try to get supper, um, what's, what's the reality of that happening? <laughs> you know, <laughs> with, Without what we don't want to fix up, or we're tired and worn out, maybe we need to go out. But if we go home, will we get up again? And the answer was, yeah, y'all know, no, we won't get up again. And So, all right, let's keep, let's keep rolling because we're up. And uh, if we sit down, there's no guarantee that we'll get up again. So we stayed up and went out to eat and then came home and, and tried to keep moving until it was all done. But, you know, y'all know, you don't ever get done. You just quit. You know, all right, that's enough. Um, well, but there's a sense where you tell yourself, even though you know it's not done, you're done. And so that's it. Well, Jesus in sitting at the right hand of father is making a statement. It's done. It's not that he's tired. That he's exhausted. Man, that was the last time I put up with those humans again. That's, that's not the thought It's to say instead, there's nothing more to do everything that's needed for the salvation of mankind it's been accomplished and god the father says son sit here now let's talk about what that means it's been explained to us in hebrews several passages hebrews uh, 725 what is jesus doing Jesus, consequently, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's referring to Jesus. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's interceding for those who are his. What is Jesus talking about? What is he interceding on? What, 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 what is there to intercede about? Well, I can think of quite a few things. First John kind of explains some of this. We'll look at that. In First John chapter 2 verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So, as I am sinning, Jesus is still saving. He is interceding on my behalf. Before the Father, Jared, you see Jared? Yes. You know his thoughts. You know he's thinking about himself. He's exalting himself before God. You see him lying. This is reflecting of living for his own glory instead of glory of the Father. This is treason. This is against the very order of how you created. This is against you. He is attacking you. But that sin, Jesus is able to say, I've become... He became that sin for me, dying on the cross, so that the righteousness of Jesus becomes My righteousness. Father, you see that sin? It is now on my behalf. I died for that sin. I suffered the consequences of that sin. I finished paying for the consequences of that sin. See, I'm sitting here next to you. It has been done. And now that righteousness that you see in me, it is on your behalf. Father, do not send him to hell. Do not condemn him because I have paid for that. It is just. It is right for you to have that satisfaction done on my behalf, not in Jesus' behalf. Now, when you have an intercessor like that, you don't ever want them to die. And the good news is, he does not. He outlives our sin. When I see Jesus ascending up to the Father, praise God, I have someone interceding on my behalf at the right hand of the Father, I mean, what more would you want? What more do you want? Sometimes it pays to have friends in the judicial system. Sometimes it pays to have friends in the police force. You guys know? George Harvey, how many church members have called you up? (laughs) Say, I've got some legal issues. We know that. But listen, we've got a higher authority... We've got a sin that has an eternal weight on it. Who do we go to? We have an advocate before the Father who's at the right hand. What more do you want? If God is for us, who can be against us? The Ascension means we've got influence before the Father through Jesus Christ. There's more to say at this point. Hebrews 8, 1 through 2. Now the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty and high, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Hebrews 10, verse 12-14. to But when Jesus Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his rest. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those... Are being sanctified. Now in that text. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 12 to 14. When it says waiting for that time. Until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. He is quoting Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Just note that. Note that. It's going to come up in just a little bit. In fact Peter. Refers to that in in Acts chapter 2. Hebrews 1, 3. He is the radiance. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the, the sunshine. He is the sunbeam of the sun, of, of God the Son, And he is the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So it speaks to us a little bit about the, the trinity of God the Father and God the Son and Jesus Christ. And how he is the, the sunshine of the glory of God, the radiance of the glory of God. And then after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. My Savior has been exalted what it's telling us Colossians 3:1, if then you've been raised with Christ seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God here's an amazing thing the Bible says that I can be in Christ and Christ is in me the hope of glory what does that mean if Christ is in me that I'm with Christ I've been raised up with Christ there is an exaltation of those who are in Christ this is why death doesn't have that same dreadful Influence. Romans eight, verse thirty-one through thirty-six. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will you not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who has the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? It is amazing to think that Jesus is not horrified and shocked by my sin. He knows my sin. He's aware of it. He dies for it. He intercedes for it. He is for me. And if Jesus the Son is for me, then what fear do I have of being separated from the love of Christ? It is good news when Jesus ascends up to be with the Father. It is a way of saying this Jesus, this one of of Nazareth, this one called the Galilean, this one with the Jewish accent, this, this one Jesus that we see right here in front of, he is... He's no longer right here. He's no longer just in one region. He's no longer uh, marginalized to one small area. He is ascending above Herod, above the Caesars, above the presidents. He is ascended above these powers and geographical lines. He is above all of that now. And this is a way of God saying, your kingdom is coming. There is no earthly power. That can stand in your way. They are all these powers but footstools. For you to have your feet on. To reign over every influence power. Whether it's the the media culture. Whether it's political culture. Or social culture. Whatever powers and forces at work. They are as but footstools to Jesus. Now. Let me share with you the third reason. Why Jesus ascends to be with the Father. Not only to uh, show us uh, the intercessor to say uh, that he is preparing a future home for us. And the second reason to, to sit and reigning with God the Father. But the third thing is that he is extending his kingdom through his spirit. Jesus is extending his kingdom through his spirit. Have you ever wondered why did Jesus have to ascend... For him to send the Holy Spirit. I mean, he's God, right? Can he do anything? I mean, can't he just be walking around with disciples and say, okay, we're going to have Pentecost and the Spirit of God is going to come upon you and I'm going to be right here with you and we're going to watch this happen. Why did he have to go? Isn't God everywhere? Why, why, why did he have to bodily leave? For the Holy Spirit to come. Jesus himself said. That he was going to leave. And that when he leaves. The spirit would come. Interesting. And John John chapter 7. Verse 32 to 39. On Pentecost. A previous Pentecost. Jesus made this prophecy. The Pharisees heard the crowd. Muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and Pharisees. Sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does the man intend to go that you will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me, and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day... This is the Pentecost feast. Jesus stood up and cried, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. What is the connection with the glorification of Jesus and the receiving of the Holy Spirit? Jesus said it was going to happen. He said it on Pentecost. And look, no, on Pentecost is when we get the Spirit of God. John chapter 16, verse 7 through 11. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of the world is judged. There's something about Jesus going and us receiving the Holy Spirit. You know, there's not too many times in our life when we associate someone departing with a blessing. If you think about it, it's kind of hard to come up with a good example of someone leaving and thereby getting blessings. But I did come up with one when my sister left for college. <laughs> she's not here. I'll tell her this later. I've told her this before. Uh, she's about three years older and, and grade-wise in school. And uh, I was a freshman. She was a senior. And uh, so as a sophomore, she, she, she leaves. I thought, my, I've never been an only child my whole life. And I thought, when she leaves, I'm not gonna fight at six in the morning for the one shower for us. I had, I had all the hot water I wanted. I didn't have to share the desserts. She would, she liked the same things I liked. She liked olives, like cream cheese, we'd eat the same stuff. And I no longer had to share. I thought, what a blessing. I didn't have to share the cars, the vehicles. I had the room to myself. Now that we shared room, I had the house to myself. What a blessing. It also came with some uh, detrimental aspects as well. Uh, Mom and dad now longer wondered who to blame. Um, and so I realized that after she left. So it had some negative consequences as, as well. Uh, but here you have a blessing tied with the departure. I've read several passages where, where it says... These things, the Spirit did not come down or would not come down until Jesus was glorified, until he had departed. And so the big question is, what's the connection? Why? Well, I want to take you to the next chapter in Acts chapter 2. And I think that Peter is explaining some of this to us in his sermon at Pentecost. He is preaching before thousands of people of gathering back to Jerusalem. And he's quoting Old Testament prophecies. And he's kind of chronicling what Jesus has done. He's referring to David, quoting him. You come to verse 30. Being therefore a prophet, referring to David, knowing that God had sworn an oath to him, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God... And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens. But he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Same quote we saw in Hebrews. It's from Psalm 110. Now, if you were to read Psalm 110, you'd find that it has... A coronation feel to it. David, being a king, knows what it's like to be coronated, knows that his descendants will be coronated. But in Psalm 1 under 10, he speaks prophetically, referring not to just a human descendant, who would be. Jesus would be a human descendant. But Jesus brought this little this little bit out and, and puzzled the religious leaders. And he said, how is it that David refers to a descendant and calls him Lord. What Jesus was alluding to, and the the Pharisees could not figure out, is that Jesus was talking about this would be king, this would be God in flesh. David's referring to Jesus. He says, he says and calls him Lord, and in this coronation, the Lord said to my Lord, God the Father said to God the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, and David... Peter connects that prophecy of Jesus reigning with the Holy Spirit coming down. What is he saying? That as an effect of Jesus being given the title of king of all, king of kings, of him being exalted because of him humbling himself and taking the form of the servant and even suffering the death of the cross, Jesus uh, was given by God the Father a name such an exalted name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and to fill that force, to fill the rain, he sends the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus, on the earth, why? So that humans can see and know and experience God's kingdom coming. Here's the point. Here's the point. If we make a big deal about Jesus reigning and we have a hope of Jesus reigning one day and we get all frustrated about the rulers of that be, and say one day Jesus is going to set his throne right and we have that hope and we set ourselves on that and we talk about the Lord coming back and we're so anxious for the Lord coming back to establish the throne on earth. If that is true, then why do we not submit to God's spirit today? That's the question. You see, for God to reign, He is letting us in on the kingdom of God now, which means God's Spirit comes into our heart, is prompting us through the Word of God. And as we are submitted to the promise of God, we are subject to God's kingdom now. We cannot, at the same time, rebel against God's Spirit and say, look, Lord, I long for your return. It does not work. We are rejecting the King. and the Old Testament, God's people rejected God the Father. In the Gospels, God's people rejected God the Son. And in Acts through today, God's people tend to reject God the Spirit. When God the Father says to God the Son, I make the enemies your footstool, you have reign over them. Then the Spirit of God, by permission of the Father and through the Son, comes to make God's kingdom known in our hearts. One day, there will be a physical rule and reign over all. And what Jesus is saying, that time is fixed. But until that time, God's kingdom is coming in our hearts for those who know Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Listen, that is why... That is why for us to have some idea or some labeling of calling someone a Christian and yet not have God's Spirit that they're submitted to, that doesn't work. That doesn't work in the Bible. By definition, a believer, a follower of Christ is someone who has God's Spirit in them because if there's no Spirit of God in them, they are no son of God their child of god what did jesus teach us to pray our father which art in heaven thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven how does that happen except for the spirit of god coming to earth and the spirit of god has been given permission because Jesus has been exalted. He has been glorified. And all nations ultimately belong to him. All things have been given to him by God the Father. And the Spirit of God now makes that known to his people. 2 Corinthians 3.17 just in reference says the Lord is that Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. We need to know. The Spirit of God is God. He is God. Have you ever wondered if I was a follower of Jesus, if I lived in Jesus' day, I wouldn't forsake Him, or maybe I would. Have you ever wondered what you do at the Golgotha? What you do leading up to those days? Would you be like Peter? Would you be like John? What what one would you be like? Well, the answer is very clear. That's however you are with the Holy Spirit today. That's what you do. A lot of us don't like talking about the Spirit of God because we, we have seen or heard of things that make us really uncomfortable. And we're not sure whether that's true or what's right or wrong. Some folks are just a little more emotional than others. But we cannot deny that there is, by God's word, his spirit. And it has been given to us to clothe us with his power to do his work. And it will impact us in every way. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, in fact, Acts 5.18 says that if you're filled with the Spirit, he kind of describes almost like uh, comparing it with being drunk. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And he talks about how it impacts us with the singing and our talking and our speech, the way we live, how we conduct ourselves as, as husbands and as wives and as children, uh, as employees. It, it has this effect on us in every way. It will. He will have an effect in our life physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Let me share with you some scriptures to kind of speak to this a little bit. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7 through 14. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore it says, notice, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. He got the victory. And he gave gifts to men. He drugged death along. Come on, death. You belong to me. And he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended to the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. No longer is he just limited geographically. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So this is part of the... Uh, The effect of the Spirit of God in our life. There's people gifted and tasked with certain jobs that the Spirit of God empowers. Why? For building up the body of Christ. Why does the body of Christ need to be built up? Until we all attain to the unity of faith and now the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood. That we would be mature to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? It is to be like Christ. Interesting enough, I need the Spirit of God to do that. And I also need God's church to do that. To be a man, I need his church and his spirit. Because being a man is to be Christ-like. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Ascension of Christ, connected with sending the spirit of God, which is connected with Being Christ-like. What does he say in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? He says, you will receive power. Wait. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. It's going to happen through the church. The Spirit of God working through the church. Not the International Mission Board, but through the church, through the believers. It happens through us. And so, let me ask you, church, if we are about anything other than making disciples, what are we doing? If we are captivated by some other purpose. Other than making disciples for Christ. We're not a church. If we are united by something other than Christ. And his spirit. His Holy Spirit. We are not. A church. We. Go forth. With much danger to ourselves. If we do not understand God's spirit in our life as believers. And understanding his purpose for us as a church. That is the last word. Of Christ. And like to the Pharisees he says. You will not see me again. Till you will see me sitting on the throne in judgment. Are for those who are in Christ I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also it's a story of a a farmer who captured a wild duck put it in his pond with the other ducks that were domesticated seemed like during the summer months the duck was okay he had it staked the rope so it wouldn't go too far but he seemed okay just eating and being fed in the summer months but came close to the winter time when the mallard no longer was content seeing the fellow mallards flying by started flying constantly pulling straining would never stop and kept up Until the rope broke and joined his destination. Believers, the Spirit of God has been placed into you. And it is a wild spirit for this world. It is one that is not content with the things of life around us. It is a spirit of God that is wild, that is no longer seeking just trivial entertainments. And saying we're satisfied with things, trivial money and power and influences of this world. There is a spirit within us that is yearning and longing, desiring for what God has called us to. And there will be a day and time when the angels have said to us that this one that you've seen ascended will descend. And that Spirit, for those of us who remain, who are there and alive at that day and time, that Spirit of God that is within us will no longer be hindered by even the force of gravity. And we'll rise to meet Him with the air. I'm going to tell you, that the Spirit of God, if it revolts against gravity at the sight of Christ, how much more should the Spirit of Christ revolt at the things of this world when there is God's Spirit within us? The believer is the only True counter-cultural person. It is counter to every cultural. doesn't matter what culture you get in. There is something where your spirit is driving for more. And the good news is death itself is not strong enough to hold it down. When Jesus went to the throne He was holding captive Death itself When Jesus ascends The disciples go Enjoy Praising God Every day in the temple Let's do the same